Support for this podcast comes from San Francisco International Airport. At SFO, you can discover award-winning flavors and unique shops all before takeoff. Learn more about what's at SFO at flysfo.com. From KQED. From KQED in San Francisco, this is Forum. I'm Mina Kim. The U.S. is now waging counter-terror campaigns in 85 countries. And if you didn't know that, it's not surprising. Our overseas wars are invisible to most Americans because they're fought by so few and because of political and strategic choices to shield them from public view. Phil Clay is a U.S. Marine Corps veteran and an award-winning fiction writer. And in a new book of essays, he grapples with the chasm between the military and civilian experience and with what our wars say about us as Americans. Clay joins us. I'm Mina Kim. Welcome to Forum. Phil Clay describes his new book of essays as attempts over the course of the Obama and Trump administrations to grapple with how we got here. And by here, Clay means many things when Americans stopped seeing how many deadly wars we've been fighting for decades, when America First policies took over, and when violence on our own soil, including mass shootings, January 6th, hate crimes, resemble the closest thing to war most of us will experience. Phil Clay is a veteran of the U.S. Marine Corps, and his new book is Uncertain Ground, Citizenship in an Age of Endless, Invisible War. Welcome to Forum, Phil Clay. Thank you so much for having me. Glad to have you here. And as we all know, the U.S. military is an all-volunteer organization. So why, Phil, did you choose to serve? Because we were at war. You know, I, I was never the kind of kid who was you know, really interested in the military when I was growing up. I wanted to be in the State Department, a diplomat like my grandfather. But uh, I went to college in 2001. Very quickly, we were in Afghanistan. And soon after that, we were in Iraq. And so it seemed that if I wanted to serve my country, the most logical thing for me to do was to, to join the military. You called it your grand cause, your test of citizenship. What did you mean by test of citizenship? Well, you know, I think that... Um, we often talk about American citizenship in terms of rights, yeah, right? But I think that self-governance uh, or or the aspiration towards self-governance uh, anyway is is something that, that 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 comes with a lot of obligations, right? I think we we have a lot of obligations to the to the country that we're a part of, uh, both for the things that it's given us and also to the ways in which it, um, it fails to live up to the, the ideals that we tell ourselves, uh, you know, about what, what the country is and what it means. And so, you know, for me, it's to be proud of being American, which I am, means that there's work that you have to do. And so, you know, this was at a young age, um, one thing that I thought I could do to respond to that. Yeah. Tell us about your time in Iraq. When were you there? I was there in 2007. So this was during the surge. It was a very different um, different environment around American war than we have today. There was a large number of troops 
in Iraq. It was a subject of fierce political debate uh, in 2007. In September of 2007, uh, there was a sort of infamous hearing where General Petraeus and Ambassador Ryan Crocker came to, to testify about the progress of the surge. And it was this kind of raucous media event. Uh, activist group put out a an advertisement, a full page ad in the New York Times suggesting that General Petraeus would be General Petraeus. There was a lot of grandstanding and an argument and, and nonsense and hypocrisy, but there was democracy in action, right? There was the representatives of the people asking hard questions and the administration being forced to articulate very clearly what they were trying to do, what the resources were that we were using and you know what success was supposed to look like. And they had to argue their case before the American public. And, and the, the nature of people's political involvement with the wars and their frustration with the wars really did a lot to, to shape American politics going forward. I mean, just for one simple measure, it's very difficult to see Barack Obama succeeding against Hillary Clinton in the primary if it, if, uh, it weren't for her vote for the Iraq war, right? And if you contrast that to today, where you have a huge reliance on special operations troops, on airstrikes, on drones, uh, on mercenaries. And we don't really have, well, we don't have any reporters embedded with US units right now. Every once in a while, the Association of Military Reporters and Editors puts out a statement demanding you know, more transparency from the government and that they start accepting embeds again. Um, we have, uh, We've had multiple presidents who have told us that we're not at war, even while we're very actively killing people in places around the world. And it's not really a subject of political debate. And that is in partly because of the ways that, that we've changed how we wage the war, but it's also a result of policy decisions. Yeah. Could I ask you the way that Iraq was more public, you talk about how there was grandstanding and so on and debate. Uh, but at least it was being discussed. Did that play a role in you feeling, you write at least immediately after your deployment, that you you didn't feel like you had anything to account for, at least, that you could defend your position and that you were under the hmm. impression that you were justified in what you did? Yeah. Because so, America had done it sort of open-eyed at that time, in your view. Well, it wasn't just that. I mean, so much of military experience is going to depend on where you were, when you were, when you were there, what the unit you were with was like, what you did. And I came into Iraq in January of 2007. I was a staff officer. It wasn't a particularly dangerous job. Anbar was a very dangerous place, though. And, you know, the first month, there's a suicide, uh, suicide bombing in Habaniya town outside our main gate. And they're just scores of, of men, women, and children being brought in to a combat hospital. And I remember very clearly, I'm, I'm carrying a stretcher with an injured child. I'd never I'd never seen injuries of, of, of that kind before on anyone, let alone a child. And by the end of the deployment, things were much, much more quiet, right? Mm -hmm. The violence had gone down a lot. So, so of course I felt good, right? There were, there were units that left sort of in the middle of the year, the early part of the middle of the year. And those guys had been in, in Iraq through 2006 and 2007, and they felt incredibly bleak and cynical about the mission because they'd only seen violence, right? And they'd seen no improvement. 
But when I left, you know, it was like, oh, I think maybe we're winning. And, and uh, you know, the, the, the longevity uh, of that decline in violence, you know, turned out not to be very long, but it was something that definitely, definitely affected me. But one thing that I could do was I understood what the strategy was supposed to be and what it was supposed to achieve. And I could actually try and measure what was happening against the rhetoric of the administration, the public rhetoric of the administration. Right. So the province where you served ultimately fell to ISIS and you have now called Iraq a failed war. Can you talk about how your reflections changed or how, if it has changed your reflections on your service? Oh, absolutely. I mean, I think those things strike both at a political level, right? In terms of, you know, the people who brought us into Iraq with false promises about how easy it would be and then mismanagement of the war that ended up costing a lot of human lives uh, and a tremendous amount of suffering. And, and it also calls into question, I think it strikes particularly veterans on a very personal level, right? <clears throat> now, at one point, not long after ISIS had taken back Ramadi and Fallujah, I remember being in an event and there was a documentary about the wars and in the Q&A with the director afterwards, the veteran stood up and he must have been the perfect image of a Marine in dress blues back when he was in, you know, tall, strong guy. And he said, I'm a Marine veteran of Iraq. That used to be something I was tremendously proud of. But now I'm looking at Iraq and I'm looking at what's happening there. And I'm wondering if I was part of an evil thing. Because if I was, I, I don't know who I am anymore. I don't know what my identity is. And, and you know, I, I remain proud of my service and, and, and I don't think that the weight of those failures is, is on him. I don't think the weight of the failures of military policy that lead to incredible suffering is, 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 is just to be shouldered on the weight of the, you know, 19 or 20 year old kid who joins the military and, and goes over and also experiences the psychological and moral burdens of, of warfare. Is that, but the, I understand yeah, go because ahead. we, we, we signed up to be part of a, a, a grander cause, right? And I'm not uniformly opposed to all the ways that we've used the military over the past 20 years, but I really don't think there's been anything near the amount of accountability that there should have been. Is that what you mean when you, when you talk about moral injury or when we talk about moral injury among soldiers or that soldiers report suffering a moral injury? Yeah, I think that... I mean, one of the strange things is when you go overseas, there are things that seem of the utmost moral importance, right? And the stakes are very existential in terms of what is happening. And when you come home, and there's there's always traditionally been a kind of disconnect between the the veteran and the um, and the civilian, right? I mean, this goes back to Odysseus who comes back to Ithaca after the Trojan War and doesn't recognize it. And the only person who recognizes him is his dog, right? But it's particularly odd right now when there are so few people who serve. And you know that the decisions that are made here in America are determinative of what happens overseas in Iraq and Afghanistan and Somalia and Yemen, all the places we're involved. And yet that connection feels very tenuous. And the moral relationship between the wars and the soldiers who fight them and the civilian feels weakly articulated. Mm -hmm. 
Right. And there's also a sense of kind of betrayal that can set in, you know, if you're sent to fight in, in wars that are mismanaged. You know, there's, a, there's an essay in the book where I say, joining the military is an act of faith, an act of faith that your country will use your life well. And it is impossible to look at the past 20 years and say that we have always done that. And that is a deep betrayal. Phil Clay's new book is Uncertain Ground, Citizenship in an Age of Endless Invisible War. Uh, Clay is a Marine veteran. His other books include Redeployment, which won the 2014 National Book Award for fiction. Uncertain Ground is nonfiction. We want to hear from you listeners. Have you served in the military as well? What made you decide to serve? Do you think there's a fundamental difference of perspective between the military and civilians in this country? And as we're hearing Clay talk about the invisibility of our American wars, how does that invisibility affect you? You can post your thoughts on Twitter, Facebook, or Instagram at KQED Forum. You can email us, forum at kqed.org. You can give us a call, 866-733-6786, 866-733-6786. We're talking about the wars we wage abroad and what our wars say about us as Americans. We'll have more after the break. I'm Mina Kim. Support for Forum comes from San Francisco Opera. Set 10 years after a school shooting, the critically acclaimed opera Innocence takes us into a complex emotional journey where our understanding of innocence and guilt is constantly upended. Kaya Sariajo's ethereal score collapses the past into the present as a community of survivors grapple with how to move forward. Don't miss the highly anticipated American premiere of Innocence, June 1st through 21st. Learn more at sfopera.com. We've all got those parts of our house where the internet just won't go. Well, if you had wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you could worry less about dead spots. Because with wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you get fast speeds, reliable connection in every room, and power for all of your devices, even when everyone's online. That's wall-to-wall Wi-Fi only with Xfinity. Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary. Welcome back to Forum. I'm Mina Kim. My guest this hour is Phil Clay, a Marine veteran and author whose new book is called Uncertain Ground, Citizenship in an Age of Endless Invisible War. And we want to hear from you. Have you served in the military? What made you decide to serve? What do you think of all the wars that the U.S. is waging abroad that are largely hidden from view? You can email your thoughts, questions to forum at kqed.org. You can post them on Twitter, Facebook, or Instagram. We're at KQED Forum. You can call us 866-733-6786. And Phil, we talked about the 85 or so counterterror missions that are going on right now. So let's talk about some of the places we're fighting that are probably less familiar to the U.S. or at least are starting to make some headlines, but people really aren't sure what we're doing there. Like Somalia, for example. Can you remind us what we're doing in Somalia? Right. Well, it was actually just reported by the New York Times um, about a week or two ago that Joe Biden was sending troops back into Somalia. We'd already had an ongoing presence in Somalia. The, the troops 
President Trump had announced that he was pulling troops out of out of Somalia, but it was really more optics than anything else. He pulled troops out, but they would sort of go and commute in, which was um, dangerous and um, uh, you know didn't didn't really change the mission, but uh, but uh, you know fit what he wanted to say politically about about his military policy. And it's difficult to see what the the long term strategy is, right? Uh, you have some. Uh, people who compare the mission there to Afghanistan because you have an extremely dysfunctional government. And so a lot of what we seem to be doing is providing military backbone. We're training troops and we're doing a, a targeted killing mission against leaders of Al-Shabaab, which is a terrorist group. Now, <clears throat> this is one of many places around the world where we're killing people, you know, Iraq, Syria, Yemen, Somalia is one, Pakistan, Libya. There are other places where we don't even really know whether we're killing people. Um, I spoke to uh, a veteran who's now a researcher at Amnesty International uh, who described Niger, Mali, and Nigeria as a true black box. He said, we know when U.S. soldiers die in Niger. We don't know when the U.S. kills people in Niger. Mm. And it, it's and, and most of these missions, you know, Congress never voted on them. The, the president never went before Congress and said, you know, we need to have a military presence here. We're going to be engaged in a war and we're going to be killing people in a war. And here's why it's in the national interest. And here's what it's going to cost. And here's what success looks like. And then, you know, have Congress vote on it. That never happened. And one of the reasons that it never happened was because we're still operating on an authorization for the use of military force signed in 2001, passed in 2001, which was intended to allow us to go against the Taliban and Al-Qaeda and associated forces, right? To go into Afghanistan and, and deal with those who are responsible for 9-11. But in the years since, presidents have legally interpreted that to mean a US presence on, as Elena Kagan uh, testified, a global battlefield, right? And so we've ceded that aspect of war making to the presidency and presidents often ask us to turn a blind eye to not pay attention. Um, we use that authorization to, to go up against ISIS, you know, when ISIS was rising in, in Iraq. And I didn't have any problem with us being involved. I mean, I have traveled through northern Iraq and I've traveled and talked to people who survived the genocide in the Yazidi areas there. I've talked to women who were enslaved by ISIS. I've been to Mosul and talked to people about what it was like living under the occupation by ISIS. And I think in many ways that was a, a, a good, if, if complex, mission. But Obama had pulled troops out of, of Iraq in 2011 and announced the end of the war with great fanfare. And for fairly obvious political reasons, he didn't want to go get a new authorization and, and, and make a political issue that he was restarting the war that he claimed was over. And so they interpreted that authorization to mean that, you know, the executive could wage war against ISIS without bringing it before Congress. And while they were doing that, they were telling the American public that we weren't putting boots on the ground, you know, because I guess the special operators that we were sending into Iraq wore combat slippers or maybe roll around on hoverboards. And right. yeah, and then, you know, they'd say, well, we're not sending troops into combat. And then special operators would end up in combat. And there was one infamous press conference where I think the language was, well, you know, sometimes we're not sending troops into combat, but sometimes they end up in a combat situation, you know? Sort of like she's not pregnant, but she's in a pregnancy situation. I'm not really sure how that parses. Um, and they very much wanted to say that we're not at war. And, you know, when Joe Biden announced the end of the war in Afghanistan, 
in the next sentence, he said, we're still going to have over the horizon strikes so we can wage counterterrorism, right? So in other words, the war is over, but the killing continues. Yeah. And I think that, I think that's a problem. I think it's a problem when we are asked to not pay attention as American citizens to the fact that we're killing people abroad. I think that it lets our leaders off too easy. I think that I think if we're going to be killing people abroad, I think every couple of years, the president should have to go before Congress and explain what we're doing, what it's going to cost, what success looks like, and everybody should vote on it. And I don't think without that, you're going to have, I don't think you're going to have successful military policy because I don't think that, you know, military strategy done to the the lowest common denominator of what is, you know, the least political costly option is necessarily going to be good over the long term. And I also just think morally as American citizens, War is the most morally fraught thing we do. And it is absolutely part of our responsibility to hold our elected leaders accountable for that. And so One I think of, that we need, yeah, go ahead. Sorry, sorry. One of the things though that we do hear a lot as well as a reason for keeping us in the dark is essentially because of national security concerns. They're not gonna tell us exactly what we're doing because it will put us at risk or jeopardize a mission, compromise a mission. <laughs> Yeah, that's always the justification. Yeah. Right. And look, th th there, there are things that you cannot reveal um, because of national security. But when we send more troops into Somalia, um, why they're there and what we're hoping to achieve, that's not an element of national security, right? Having a debate in Congress about whether this, this mission is worth it or whether long-term success is possible that's not going to jeopardize national security. Having people wonder whether it's going to lead to long-term better security for the United States. If we have ongoing missions around the world where we don't have that much engagement with those countries, but where we are killing people and their primary relationship to the US power is when we emerge from the skies and, and you know kill those around them, is that, is that going to lead to a more stable, secure world? over the long term, having a debate about that is not going to jeopardize national security. I think quite the opposite. It's actually going to make us be a lot more responsible about the ways that we try and secure our national security. We're talking with Phil Clay. His book is Uncertain Ground, Citizenship in an Age of Endless Invisible War, Grappling with America's Wars and Why They're Shielded from Public View. Let me go to caller Chris in San Francisco. Chris, thanks for calling. Hey, thanks for taking my call. Um, I heard Phil say that uh, uh, people's experience are different based on what unit they're in what they're, and what time that they were there, when, how things were on the ground. So in my experience, I was a civilian uh, paramedic here in San Francisco in the ambulances, and I felt the pull to go to the one war that I believed in. I long, no longer believed in Iraq. So I found a way into Afghanistan and became a, a, an armed ground and flight medic uh, based out of Kabul. And it was great. For, I mean, I believed in it at first. I believed in my work. I believed in the country and the mission. But a few months into it, I started to see the lies all around me and, and the misrepresentation and that it was a failure and there was no real mission. And that's when the work became really hard. Exposing myself to, uh, to risk for something I no longer believed in was, became really hard. And that's why I started smoking cigarettes and I got hooked on Valium, started uh, making some bad decisions. And when I got out of there after one year, 366 days, I found myself uh, – Full of full of rage, full of hate, and it's hard to. They'll never go away. That's for me. I mean, it's a gift that keeps on giving, and that's all I gotta say. Oh, Chris, I 
So appreciate you calling Phil Clay, your reactions to what you're hearing Chris share. This is, I mean, this is not uncommon. And you know, that, that experience with Afghanistan, I've heard a lot of veterans talk about that because the initial purpose that we went in might've been clear, but it got very muddled along the way. You know, I remember, I remember about a, a journalist was talking to a Marine during Obama's surge and the Marine said, this war's stupid, so what, my country's in it, you know? And so many folks talking about their deployment, they knew that the second that they left, the Taliban was gonna come back to some of those regions, right? And at one point I was talking to a, a guy who was in the special, special forces and he said, you know, the funny thing at that time was I actually felt better about some of the Iraq deployments, even though Iraq was the stupid war, because they were, you know, they were doing raids, but they tended to be, they, the raids that they were doing were signed off on by an Iraqi judge. And so it felt more connected to state building. And he said, in Afghanistan, year after year, we were going into the same valleys. We weren't building roads or schools or local governments. We didn't have any money for that. We're just doing interdiction mission after interdiction mission, getting into these gnarly firefights with kids, right? That's, you know, the Taliban was sending, there were a decent number of young people that they're sending against them. And they were chewing them up because, you know, they're special forces, they're really good soldiers, and they have a lot of, you know, support capabilities, the United States military behind them. And he said, I used to wonder why they would cope against us. And I realized eventually, oh, because they can, because they can keep doing this. And eventually we're going to leave. And after all that bloodshed, nothing will have changed. Right. And that's really hard to deal with. And it's, um, it's, it's, it's tremendously frustrating. I, I, I quote a veteran of Afghanistan in the book, and I was speaking to him in August, right after the Taliban had taken Kabul. And he was deeply involved in the humanitarian efforts to try and get people who had worked with the, with the American, Americans out of Kabul because those people were at threat, not just their lives, but the lives of their families. And, and he said to me, he said, everyone wants to know, am I okay? And I'm like, really? Is the burden of feeling guilty about this also a burden veterans have to carry too? Not only did you not care about Afghanistan, not only did you not follow Afghanistan, it's, such, it's like you gave such a little blank, you can't even feel bad yourself. Could somebody else please take some of this, take some responsibility? I'm so tired of it and it's killing me and it shouldn't be messing me up this much. the same time, you know, I spoke to that same veteran a couple months later, and he was still doing the work trying to get people out of Afghanistan, right? Work that's ongoing and which is often really bleak and hard, yeah. but he was also resettling some of the folks who did make it over here. And he said, one thing that was really good for him was seeing the number of people who came out to, to help in that work, people who didn't have any connection to Afghanistan or the military. And he said, I used to have this rage against civilians, you know, for their apathy, for not caring. And he realized that if you do ask Americans to step up, many times they will. But one of the problems with how we wage war now is that for the past 20 years, we've done quite the opposite, right? We haven't asked Americans to step up and we haven't even asked them to care or pay attention. Well, let me again thank Chris for that call and I'll go to Jim next in Sacramento. Hi, Jim. Hi, how are you today? I'm well. How are you? Go right ahead. I'm I'm well, thank you. I'm almost I'm working, I'm almost to my destination, but I wanted to just comment about your caller. He is a 
very articulate, very knowledgeable. I agree with much of the things that he has to say, and uh, I appreciate his service. I was in the military myself, uh, volunteered for Vietnam, uh, and uh, never got sent there. Uh, was in Japan for a long time and then got an early out for uh, school. My only comment really was is to uh, encourage the government, our government, to make it a mandate that every young uh, boy that's 18, man that's 18 years, as soon as he hits 18 years, he is to do two years of duty in the military, uh, no matter which military it might be. Hmm. And I believe that as a result, this country will become more mature, more responsible, and uh, will be able to make decisions in a much more intelligent uh, uh, frame of mind, having served in the military. And I'm going to have to go and take my call on the air. Uh, I'll, I'll just let it be at that since I've come to my destiny. Thank <laughs> okay. you for hearing Jim, what I have to say. Sure. Thank and you. Jim, thanks. And Phil, I'd like to ask you, do you advocate for universal service requirements as one way to try to do so many things that you'd like to see happen, but in addition for not just people to understand the experience and what it means to do it, but to share the moral burden more equitably. Do you, do you think we need to do that? I understand the desire. Um, I don't think it would be a cure-all necessarily, especially because we're not even using the totality of our military right now, right? We're, we're using a lot of the aspects of, of our American military power that are the least transparent to the public, right? Drones, special operations forces, you know, we're, we're relying on mercenaries a lot, which is a whole other set of problems. But I do think that service is a very important thing. Now, not everybody should be in the military. I don't think everybody belongs in the military. And I'm pretty sure most first sergeants would agree with me. But I do think it would be extremely good for the country if we opened up a lot more avenues for service for young people, not just in the military, but more broadly. Um, and I think one of the benefits of joining the military is just being together with an incredibly diverse group of people. I mean, I really met America when I was in the military, you know, and it took me out of the bubble that I'd grown up in my whole life and, and didn't even understand the contours of, right? And to be together with a group of people from very diverse backgrounds, all trying to work towards a common goal for the national good, right? That I think can be a very ennobling experience. I don't think it just needs to be done through the military though. Well, Michael writes, I became eligible to serve in the mid sixties when it quickly became apparent that one's patriotic duty was not to serve. I wonder if the author has any thoughts in that vein. You know, I mean, it sounds like somebody who <laughs> uh, would not be well suited to uh, to join the military, but might find some other better way of, of service. Um, you know, I I am glad that I served. Um, I think it is an honorable thing to serve your country. I think that the you know <clears throat> the moral burdens and complications of our military policy are are burdens that, that we should all share. You know, I, I met a veteran, I was talking with a veteran who his reserve unit had been called up. He was a MP and they were going to do a deployment, but it was not certain which one they were going to get yet. Either they were going to go over to Africa and uh, help 
on bases that have been set up to, to deal with the Ebola crisis. A mission that I think everybody could, could get behind, right? And, and feel good about and feel was a, a reflection of America being a, a good and positive influence around the world and, and living up to certain ideals that we like to believe, <clears throat> uh, you know, that we'd like to say about ourselves. Or the other mission that he was going to get, uh, he was to be a prison guard at Guantanamo Bay, which is has a very different kind of moral valence to most people and is an example of us failing to live up to those ideals in, in many important ways. And, you know, depending on what deployment he got sent on, he would have a very different response from people when he came back, right? And yet the sort of moral censure or celebration for one type of mission or the other is, you know, didn't have much to do with his own personal choice since it was ultimately random where he was going to go much more to do with the decisions that we have made as a nation to be the kind of country that does both of those things. We're talking with Phil Clay about grappling with the wars that America wages, how it's shielded from public view, and the impacts of our invisible wars on those who serve. And if you want to join the conversation, you can find us on Twitter, Facebook, or Instagram at KQED Forum. You can email us forum at kqed.org. You can call us at 866-733-6786. 866-733-6786. We'll have more after the break. I'm Mina Kim. Support for Forum comes from San Francisco Opera. Set 10 years after a school shooting, the critically acclaimed opera Innocence takes us into a complex emotional journey where our understanding of innocence and guilt is constantly upended. Kaya Sariajo's ethereal score collapses the past into the present as a community of survivors grapple with how to move forward. Don't miss the highly anticipated American premiere of Innocence, June 1st through 21st. Learn more at sfopera.com. We've all got those parts of our house where the internet just won't go. Well, if you had wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you could worry less about dead spots. Because with wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you get fast speeds, reliable connection in every room, and power for all of your devices, even when everyone's online. That's wall-to-wall Wi-Fi only with Xfinity. Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary. Welcome back to Forum. I'm Mina Kim. My guest this hour is Phil Clay, a Marine veteran and author whose new book is called Uncertain Ground, Citizenship in an Age of Endless Invisible War. And Clay's earlier book that won the 2014 National Book Award for Fiction is called Redeployment. To join the conversation, you can email us, forum at kqed.org, or post your thoughts on Twitter or Facebook, or call us, 866-733-6786, 866-733-6786. Tom asks, I have heard many frightening stories about right-wing radical recruitment among soldiers and veterans. Is it your experience that veterans have an allegiance to the Constitution, or do we risk facing a significant cadre of well-trained, radicalized right-wing insurrectionist soldiers and veterans You think a lot about January 6th, for example, where there was a lot highlighted in terms of there were a lot of veterans at 
that attack on our capital as well. And also in the context of that being the closest thing that the U.S. or the people on U.S. soil see to war. What do you think about what Tom is asking here? So it's, it's complicated. I don't think we should overstate the problem. The number of veterans on January 6th, the veterans were very, very visible. Um, but they were not, um, <clears throat> they weren't disproportionate to the numbers of veterans in, in the population. Um, and as far as a sort of well-trained point, you know, it's, it's probably worth noting that, you know, the folks at, at January 6th were utter buffoons. That doesn't mean that utter buffoons can't be dangerous. I think the problem is not necessarily, um, you know, a, a cadre of well-trained veterans who are going to uh, attack the constitution. Um, I think it's a more general problem and the veterans who are there are representing a kind of radicalization and rage uh, amongst the American population as a whole. And that is the problem. Yes, you know, radical groups do recruit veterans. Um, you know, they, they like the iconography of the military. And, you know, it's worth saying that a kind of militarized radicalism is something that, that has been, um, you know, pushed by, by elected leaders. I mean, I think one of the more cringeworthy and embarrassing and stupid political advertisements that we had was Dan Crenshaw's advertisement in Georgia, where Crenshaw is a, you know, had been served in the Navy SEALs and the advertisement had like a Marvel superhero movie kind of, uh, aesthetic. It was clearly a high budget thing. And he jumps out of a helicopter or an airplane and um, lands on a car with guys who are supposed to be in uh, Antifa uh, in Georgia and then, you know, attacks them. And this was his way of, of you know, trying to win votes for mm -hmm. senators in Georgia. And it was, you know, it was stupid and buffoonish and, and ridiculous, but how dark that he knew that there was a a group of American citizens who would thrill to the idea of seeing a former Navy SEAL beat up fellow Americans, right? Yes. That that was, you know, pleasurable um, for them. And I think that, you know, it's, it's, it's a, it's a current in our politics. And I don't think that you can, you can disassociate the, the kind of frustration and rage and the rage at the elites that has grown up in our politics from the just complete failures of, of American foreign policy. Yes. But forgive me, Phil Clay, I think you are also, at least when I read your essays, feel like you are pointing to a current in our culture as well, meaning yes. that we are enamored by war and warcraft. You devote an entire essay talking about the Las Vegas gun massacre, but in particular the AR-15 um, mm -hmm. and, and, as we know now, it is used in most, if not all, the most deadly mass shootings we have seen in the U.S. Yeah, it's it's that is it's a long essay on on the history of ballistics, right? And I start with America's first convicted murderer who came on the Mayflower and whose weapon was a gun, and I go to the weapon reused in the, in the Las Vegas shooting, right? Our first murderer, you you know, got one shot off and he hit his target. If he hadn't, the guy probably would have been able to get away because there's a complex reloading process. In the Las Vegas shooting, you had a shooter with no particular military skills who was able to put 1,100 rounds downrange and kill scores of people. And of course, you know, we, we've seen that again most horribly recently. And it's not just that 
this these weapons can put a lot of rounds out very rapidly, but they're much more devastating in the kinds of wounds that they cause. And I, I go through the the evolution of wound ballistics and, and studies in World War during World War II and and the realization that you could take a lighter round that would spin in the body. And because it's going so fast, it's not just that it causes damage to the tissue hit by the projectile, right? As would happen with a, a slower round. But with a really fast round, think of a speedboat going through water and the wake behind the speedboat. High-speed bullets cause that kind of wake inside the human body. And that wake of blood and tissue can rend soft organs and cause much more grievous wounds. And there's a 1962 study and I, that I quote in the piece, and I think about it whenever there's one of these things, where the Surgeon General of the Army talks about the importance of studying these types of wounds because you're never going to see these things in peacetime, right? Injuries this grievous, grievous from military-grade hardware that causes wounds that are just totally different. And of course, that's not the case. In shooting after shooting, we see these kind of wounds again and again and again. And the, the other piece of that, by the way, uh, that became important when I was researching that piece was not just the development of the technology, but also the development of the mythology around guns, right? right? We have this image of the, of, of, of the past and how the West was won and, and Samuel Colt's weaponry that in many regards was a product of marketing. When Colt developed his, his revolver, he sold 10,000 to Texas, and then the Texas market was saturated, and you couldn't sell any more guns to Texas because there was you know, no real civilian market for firearms. Well, 10,000 guns wouldn't, wouldn't saturate a Texas town today. And one of the things that Colt realized was you, you needed to, to build up mythology around guns, and that's what he very consciously did. He was a brilliant marketer. He'd, he'd spent his early years going around as Dr. Samuel Colt of London and Calcutta and New York with nitrous oxide, giving people laughing gas and putting on shows. And he brought that flair to gun advertising. He developed predicament advertising where you know somebody's being threatened and they use a gun to save themselves. He hired fi famous artists to, to make paintings of, of, uh, of his guns. Um, and other gun manufacturers picked up on this. And this kind of mythology of the West and the role of guns in it uh, and the role of guns in American history was very consciously pushed, pushed, you know, after the civil war, you have this campaign from Colt where it says, Abraham Lincoln freed all men, but Samuel Colt made them equal. And this is this sort of, I think, very pernicious idea that instead of, you know, James Madison's all government rests on opinion, right? And government and freedom is about democratic debate and participation. Now, American ideals are starting to be recast as being dependent on, you know, carrying a an extremely lethal killing machine around with you wherever you go. Yes. <clears throat> and so the piece traces those, that sort of early ideas about how you can market guns and the kind of mythology that you can build around them to the present day, where, you know, now guns are marketed around fear of immigration, you know, during Barack Obama's presidency, you know, messages like Latin American guns are invading every city in fear of crime and fear of, of, of terrorism. Um, and fear of, you know, uh, Barack Obama coming and taking away your weapons. So we have this amazing boom of guns. And last year we had nearly 20 million gun sales in America. And so we're just saturated with these incredibly, incredibly lethal weapons. Yes. Let me go to caller D in Half Moon Bay. Hi, D. 
Hi, how are you? I'm well. Go ahead. Well, I just wanted to thank Phil for his service and to say I'm 88 years old, and I came to this country when I was six, mainly because I had the luxury of being born here, even though I had English parents who were working in the States, which allowed me this opportunity. But from that time until fairly recently, I was very proud to be an American, and I was raised to believe the military was there to help us, just like the police force. They were our friends. We had to admire them. And I voted first for Eisenhower. But this country has developed into a place where you can't even discuss any political idea, which could be totally innocuous because we just don't communicate. So it's I think the deepest issue in this country is lack of communication. Well, Dee, thanks for sharing that reflection. I don't know if you have a, a quick response there, Phil. I, I do think that's actually very important. You know, you know, it was one of the things, there's a section in the book on writing, um, but it's really a section on communication, right? Writing, uh, talking with other people. I mean, on a very personal level, you come back from war and you want to be able to talk about it. You want to be able to work it through because you don't necessarily have a grip on what you experienced. And it can be very challenging, uh, especially because you're sort of navigating all this kind of cultural detritus that we have about war and, and, and veterans. And so it's personally important, but it's also politically important to be able to have difficult conversations about things that are, uh, that feel very existential stakes. You know, there's, there's a way in which sometimes veterans try to, to shut down civilians out of conversations about war. Uh, I have a piece where I talk about General Kelly doing precisely this after the, uh, the, the deaths of, of U.S. soldiers in Niger. And, you know, when he only wanted people who, who had a connection to somebody who had died overseas asking, asking, you know, questions of him. And I have a real problem with that. I think that, you know, issues of public concern are all of our responsibility, even though the stakes are sometimes feel much more emotionally and existentially important for some people than others. We have to be able to open up spaces for that kind of debate. And I also am committed to a style of open engagement, not necessarily because every other perspective deserves respect, but one, because I think we are all equal citizens. We should treat each other as such. We should have a raucous debate, but one where you're generally trying to understand, because I think that process often helps you sharpen and refine your own ideas and be able to articulate them better and and remove some of the blind spots, you know, uh, and so that is, that is most certainly a concern of the book. Let me go to Jean next in Pismo Beach. Hi, Jean. Hello. Hello. Go right ahead, Jean. Uh, my comment is that our political system is basically creating all of these wars that we seem to be fighting for no reason whatsoever. We elect our leaders on a popularity basis. We elect actors and drunks and performers without any uh, any uh, direction towards uh, electing people who have ability, who people have intellect. So we're saddled with drunks and actors and corrupt businessmen just to name a few of those that have been at the top of of our tickets and our offices in the last 
years. And they run us into these wars because it makes them more popular at the moment. Well, Gene, thanks. Sorry, sorry to interrupt you there. We're just running a touch short on time. And I did want to just ask you about what Gene is saying with regard to, as you have talked about, uh, Phil, just the political calculations that go into our, our wars by you know, leaders I, at the time. What do you think of this? In assessment? some ways, I think people are, are re responding to what the American people want, but what the American people want is often schizophrenic, right? So we don't like the wars. We don't like, you know, being involved, but we also, you know, want to be able to strike people. You know, we wanted to be out of Iraq, but we wanted to hit ISIS, right? Um, you know, we want to be out of Afghanistan, but we want to be able to strike, you know, Al Qaeda, and so I think that in many ways, the, the strange situation that we have, where on the one hand, you know, we say that we're not at war, but on the other hand, our political leaders trumpet their, you know, you know, when they kill somebody who Americans don't like, is a reflection of the American public. And so I think that we need to change our attitude towards the wars. I also think that we need to have more public debates that these things come into uh, into focus and more political debate, right? Yeah. That's one of the and reasons what, why I want Congress to vote on these things. What would a coherent national policy look like? And let me just remind listeners that we're talking with Phil Clay, a Marine yeah. veteran, and, and you are and, listening to Forum. Yeah. I'm Mina Kim. I, Go ahead, I, Phil. And I should say that I don't, I'm not opposed to every use of American military power in the world, right? You know, I was in Northern Iraq in December of 2019. And I was at a refugee uh, camp where I was meeting with a Syrian refugee, and he was Kurdish, and he was furious that Donald Trump had pulled troops out of Syria, right? We had a, well, we have a presence there, and Donald Trump had ordered American military to pull troops out of Syria, and then there was a kind of weird bureaucratic shuffle, and uh, some troops left and some troops stayed, and it was um, you know chaotic as a lot of the sort of seemingly impulse decisions of of, of Trump tended to have a kind of chaotic uh, uh, way they happened. But in the regions where we pulled troops out, Turkish-backed militias went in and ethnically cleansed the region. And so I'm talking to this man; he's got pins up and down his leg from where he was injured in, in a rocket attack. His he's got a pregnant wife. He has two children, and they're living in a tent. And he, you know, he said, you know, because the Kurds had helped America fight against ISIS, we'd relied very much on them. And he said, you know, America used us and then let us go when, when it wasn't convenient. He was very bitter about that. And everybody in the region really wanted the troops that we had in Syria to stay there because their assumption was that if we pulled them out, then you'd have exact same thing happened in the remaining regions, but on a much broader scale. And you'd see something like 100 to 150,000 refugees in instead of, you know, 12 to 20. And so I, I, I do think that there are, there are regions where we're holding back um, much worse outcomes, where there's a genuine interest, um, and where I think that it's good. I just think that we should have much more democratic accountability about where we're doing that and why and what the outcome would be if we leave. Um, yeah. Because some of those missions make a lot more sense than others.
Well, a few final thoughts from our listeners. Chris White's in the early 70s. I was a young teen. My neighbor returned from Vietnam. He was drafted when he left our small town and believed it was important to serve. He came back disillusioned about the integrity of the military and government. Donna writes, women serve too. All talk about service should always include women. Kate writes, I was married to a Marine and lived off base near Camp Lejeune, North Carolina, and I can tell you from personal experience things have not changed much since then. We were lied to by our military leaders, we were treated less than by the townspeople we lived near, and when my husband's younger brother, a fellow Marine, was killed in combat, we were ordered to the base, not visited in our home by my husband's commanding officer. We had to drive 15 minutes to reach the office, and we knew on that ride bad news waited for us. It was excruciating, and we drove home bereft and in tears. I have very little respect for our military leaders, but I honor the men and women who choose to serve. Kate, I'm sorry to hear that. Yeah. So so you've talked a little bit about what a national policy needs to look like. What needs to happen so that this chasm that people feel between those who serve and civilians doesn't grow? And we just have 20 seconds, Phil. <laughs> uh, get rid of the authorization for the use of military force, allow uh, journalists to embed uh, with military units again, have more transparency and accountability from uh, the DOD and the executive, uh, and and also just uh, average American citizens should feel much more empowered in, in terms of their conversation and, and, and what they demand when it comes to issues of national security. And they shouldn't just assume that uh, uh, if secrecy is invoked by national security that, uh, that we can trust those in charge because after 20 years, I think we've seen that they do not, they have not earned that level of trust. Hmm. Phil, thanks so much for your time. Thank you. Phil Clay, a Marine veteran and author of Uncertain Ground. Thanks, listeners, for listening. Have a good weekend. Funds for the production of Forum are provided by the members of KQED Public Radio, the Germanicos Foundation, the Generosity Foundation, and the Heising Simons Foundation. Support for Forum comes from San Francisco Opera. Set 10 years after a school shooting, the critically acclaimed opera Innocence takes us into a complex emotional journey where our understanding of innocence and guilt is constantly upended. Kaya Sariajo's ethereal score collapses the past into the present as a community of survivors grapple with how to move forward. Don't miss the highly anticipated American premiere of Innocence, June 1st through 21st. Learn more at sfopera.com. We've all got those parts of our house where the internet just won't go. Well, if you had wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you could worry less about dead spots. Because with wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you get fast speeds, reliable connection in every room, and power for all of your devices, even when everyone's online. That's wall-to-wall Wi-Fi only with Xfinity. Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary. Did you ever wonder what it's like to live alone, hidden in the woods, not speaking to a single soul for 30 years? Or wander the desert, uncover a hidden well, and dive to the bottom of the deepest water hole for 2,000 miles? The Snapchat Podcast takes you there with amazing stories told by the people who live them with an original soundscape that drops you directly into their shoes. Snap Judgment. Listen and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts.